morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's great to be with you. I have to apologize. I'm a bit croaky this morning. I've been fighting a lurgy all week. I don't normally sound like this. Um, but I've chosen to use the stand mic rather than a head mic because I didn't want the last thing you remembered of this morning to be your burst eardrum as I coughed down the microphone. So uh, I hope you'll excuse my, my rather poor voice. I hope you can hear me okay. But it's great to be with you. Um, my name's Sally Campbell. As Polly said, I'm from Above Bar Church. Um, I'm actually on the staff team there as pastoral coordinator. And uh, we're really glad of all the links that there are between Above Bar and Portswood. And uh, we're delighted uh, at the, the recent news that Dan and Joe Simpkins are going to be coming to join you here when they leave us in the summer. So that's, that's really great. And we hope that they'll be a blessing to you uh, as they have been to us. Well, as, um, as Polly said, this morning we're continuing our journey through uh, the first part of the book of Revelation. And um, after the introduction that John Ayrton brought to us last week from that first chapter, we then get into a series of seven letters to different churches in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And this morning we're looking at the first of these seven letters uh, to the church at Ephesus uh, which Polly's just read for us. So it'd be really helpful if you could keep uh, that open in Revelation 2 as we think about this morning what Christ thinks of the church when our love cools. So shall we just uh, pray again as, as we start to look at this uh, letter together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit, and we pray again that you would speak to us through this passage this morning. Please would you use my words, Lord, to speak to this church family here at Portswood. Would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Would you challenge them? And uh, would you draw each one of us closer to yourself this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been uh, anywhere near a supermarket or a card shop in the last month, it can't have escaped your notice that two days ago was Valentine's Day. Now, I don't want to be cynical, but I think the main people who benefit from Valentine's Day are probably the card manufacturers and the chocolate suppliers and the florists. Um, but it's not just Valentine's Day, is it? When you look at our society, there's quite a preoccupation with the whole topic of love. If you look at, uh, listen to the popular songs, most of them are about finding love or enjoying love or losing love. Uh, when you look at the cinema or the television, there are lots of rom-coms about. But the sort of love that's portrayed there is often a, a rather superficial or unrealistic kind of love, isn't it? And uh, I was um, sort of looking at a few of the cheesier Valentine's messages in the last couple of weeks, and I thought I'd share a couple with you. Here's the first one. What's the use of gravity if I will just fall for you? Or how about this one? You're the macaroni to my cheese. Will you be my valentine, please? That's literally cheesy, isn't it, that one? And it turns out there are even some cheesy Christian chat-up lines around. You might want to get your pen and paper out. First one. The Bible says... Give drink to those who are thirsty and feed the hungry. So how about dinner tonight? And then I think this was probably the favourite one I found. 
So last night I was reading the book of Numbers, and then I realized I don't have yours. I can see a few people going, oh. Now don't get me wrong, I'm, <clears throat> I'm all for encouraging people to express their love for one another, but we should be doing this any time of the year, shouldn't we? Not just Valentine's Day, and not just in romantic relationships, but in our families and in our friendships as well. And the letter we're looking at this morning is all about love, actually. Um, But it's a very different kind of love from the sort of thing we find in a Valentine's card or in the latest rom-com. John reminded us last week that the book of Revelation was written to bless us and that it helps us to have a new perspective. And these seven letters to the churches are quite challenging at times. But they're written because Jesus loves the church. We see this throughout scripture. Um, For example, in the New Testament in Ephesians 5, where we're reminded that Christ loves the church and husbands are urged to reflect this in the way they love their wives. And last week, as we looked at chapter 1, we we shared John's vision. That's the Apostle John. um, John's vision of Jesus among the seven lampstands which represent the seven churches to whom they're written. And uh, John Ayrton pointed out that Jesus is among the lampstands because he cares for us, he knows us, he knows his church. So um, here are the seven churches, if you can just about see that. Um, And there's a red arrow pointing to where Ephesus is. And there are actually some similarities between Ephesus and Southampton. You'll see that Ephesus is on the coast. It was a harbour city. It was important for trade, like Southampton, and both Ephesus and Southampton had well-established churches. So although the seven churches were specific churches at the time that were being written to, the messages to them are relevant for the church throughout the world and throughout time. So we need to listen to what this letter is saying to us. It's not just for Ephesus, it's for Portswood as well. In the first verse of this passage that we're looking at, we're reminded that Jesus walks among the seven lampstands. And the next two sentences begin, I know, I know. Jesus is not a distant saviour, looking down from glory, his work done, but one who is near to the church, his bride, and who knows his bride, the church, very well. So that's the context in which Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus and speaks to us. And this letter to Ephesus addresses two main things. Firstly, what's right with the church, and then what's wrong with the church. So let's begin by looking at what is right. Well, if you look at uh, the passage again, we see what's right in verses 2, 3, and 6. It says this, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then further down in verse 6, there's another encouragement. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans who are mentioned here, and they pop up again in the letter to Pergamum later in the same chapter. But it seems that they were promoting false teaching 
and that that teaching also led people into sinful practices uh, which could lead them astray. And the church here is obviously making a stand against that. So this church has got a lot to commend it, hasn't it? It almost seems a, a model church. It's obviously a very active church, working hard for the gospel. When faced with hardship, the church has persevered and endured. They haven't given up. They haven't grown weary. And they've been discerning. They've tested teaching. And they've remained uh, faithful to the gospel, even in the face of false teaching and practices. So as we read these first few verses, it sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, Lots, lots to be praised. But then when we get to verse 4 we see that there is a problem. So, oh, sorry, these are the things that are right. I need to keep up with my clicking. And then secondly, what's wrong? And actually, there's just one thing that we read that's wrong, but it's a major thing. In verse 4, yet this, yes, I hold this against you, You have forsaken your first love. It's not quite clear from this sentence whether it means their love for Jesus or their love for one another. But it would seem that because throughout scripture, first in the Old Testament when God talks about Israel and then in the New Testament uh, when we hear about the church, the new Israel, that uh, Israel and the church are portrayed as God's bride So it would seem, in the context of the whole of scripture, that Jesus is talking about the church's love for him. But I guess it's fair to say that if a church has lost its love for Jesus, then that will have an effect on its love for for people and its relationships within the church and beyond, won't it? So what might this look like in practice, forsaking their first love? We're not given any details, obviously, But uh, we can see from the the previous verses that they were obviously going through the motions of their faith. They were doing the right things, in inverted commas. They were working hard. They were testing false teaching. They were not growing weary or giving up. Maybe they were quite proud of being what many would have considered a, a model church, an established church in a thriving city. And as we've seen already, much of what they were doing was good, and Jesus commends them for it. And we mustn't lose sight of that either. Uh, Here at Portswood, I know there's lots that you can be commended for. But it says that they've lost their first love. And this seems to me to have echoes of what Paul says uh, in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, where it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's quite stark, isn't it? And maybe this church at Ephesus had become like that. They were doing lots of things. They were outwardly seeming very spiritual even. But perhaps they'd become legalistic in what they were doing. Maybe they were serving out of duty and without joy. 
It seems that they gradually lost their love for Jesus. But perhaps they felt it didn't really matter as long as they were doing what they were supposed to be doing as Christians. Now, I'm not married myself, but I know enough married couples to know that this sort of thing can often happen in marriages, can't it? After that first flush of love and excitement and everything being new, this is a little warning to Josh and Polly, I know they haven't been married for very long. After that first flush of excitement, the routine of daily life settles in and things can become mundane. You go to work, you do the household chores, you go to church meetings, you watch TV, you look after the children if you have any, you walk the dog, and somehow you lose sight of one another. And I think this uh, slide sums it up quite well. It says, you meet someone, you two get close. It's all great for a while. Then someone stops trying. Talk less. Awkward conversations. The drifting. No communication whatsoever. The memories start to fade. Then that person you know becomes that person you knew. That's how it usually goes, right? Sad, isn't it? Yes, it is sad. And just as an aside, I would say if you're married and if this is striking a chord with you, then I would encourage you to do something about it as soon as possible. And don't be afraid to ask for help. There's lots of help out there. Don't be ashamed. Much better to address it and to try and get things back on track with God's help. But it's even more sad, isn't it, when this is what it's like in our relationship with Jesus. We need to remember that this letter is written to a whole church. So we have a responsibility as a community of God's people to keep our love for Jesus alive. But the church is made up of individuals, isn't it? The church is made up of you and of me. So we each have a part to play in heeding Jesus' words to us in this letter. We can do this by nurturing our own relationship with Jesus, but also by pointing one another to Jesus and reminding each other what he's like and how much he loves us. So if, as we've said, the book of Revelation is about getting a new perspective, how, can we, how could we come back from this situation of having lost our first love for Jesus? How could we get a new perspective here? At the beginning of verse 5, Jesus says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So I've got three R's for us, which I've unashamedly stolen from John Stott, I'm afraid. And the first one is remember. We need to remember how things were before. We need to think about what it was like when we first met Jesus, when we first loved him. And compare that with where we are now. Do we need to consider how far we've fallen? Going back to the example of marriage, uh, for a married couple it might be about sitting and reminiscing about when they first met, recalling happy memories, digging out some old photos and reliving uh, the things that they enjoyed together. And we can do a similar thing as we remember uh, when we first got to know Jesus We could sit and reflect on it on our own. 
Or maybe we could share testimonies, uh, just as we've shared this morning, things that God has done this week. Or sharing how we first met Jesus uh, as a church, maybe in our home groups, in our prayer triplets. And that way we can encourage ourselves and encourage one another. We can bring to mind the ways that we've seen God working in our lives and in the lives of others. How we've seen him answering prayer. How we've seen him walking alongside us in good times and in difficult times. Maybe we've got a a diary or a prayer journal that we could read back through. But in whatever way, in the busyness and in the ordinariness of life, let's take time to remember how we came to know Jesus and how much he means to us. And then secondly, as part of remembering, we maybe need to remember what Jesus is really like. I wonder what comes to mind when you think about Jesus. Because all sorts of things uh, can influence uh, how we think about Jesus. Not least the experience we've had of of our parents, both mum and dad. And some of us might have had very difficult experiences of our parents. Some of us might have had great parents. But even the best parents are not perfect. And the way our parents have been towards us, can influence how we think that that God is towards us. And it's good to be aware of that. But we might have got a distorted view of Jesus as well. Over time, we might have lost sight of what he's really like. I wonder if any of these uh, strike a chord with you. Any of these images come to mind when you think of Jesus. Do you think of him as a commanding officer, barking orders and expecting us just to obey Do you think of a legalistic lawyer who's only really interested in whether we're doing right or wrong? Do you think of Jesus as a frowning teacher who's got lots of standards for us to meet, tests for us to pass? Or do you think of Jesus as a controlling puppeteer, not really interested in us as long as we're doing what he wants? He's just calling the tune and we have to go along with it. Now, I don't know if any of that uh, it strikes a chord with you, but I think if we, if we see Jesus in any of these ways, I'm not sure it would induce feelings of love, would it? John's first letter reminds us that we love because he first loved us. I wonder if we need to be reminded of Jesus' unconditional love for us, of the fact that he's lived a human life, and sympathises with our weaknesses, as we read in the book of Hebrews. Whether we need to be reminded of the price he paid on the cross for us, of the fact that he calls us brothers and sisters, and is now and always at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, having mercy on our sin, and compassion for our weaknesses and struggles. If we remember those things then surely we'll love him afresh. And we can remind ourselves of these things by reading God's word, can't we? If we've lost sight of who Jesus is, then we need to turn to the pages of scripture. If we've got a distorted image of who Jesus is, the pages of scripture can remind us of what Jesus is really like, how much he loves us, and then we'll get a new love for him. So we need to remember 
Remember how things were before. Remember what Jesus is really like. And then we need to repent. If this is the case, I don't know all of you. I know some people here, which is great. And I don't know you as a church very well. But if we've forsaken our first love for Jesus as individuals or as a church, then we need to acknowledge that and say sorry. But repenting isn't just about saying sorry, is it? It's about a conscious decision to change direction. It's not always enough to wait until we feel sorry or feel like changing. Sometimes we just need to decide that something's got to change. In our friendships or relationships or marriages, when things aren't great, we often have to choose to love the other person, even if we don't feel like it in that moment. It's an act of will, not just an emotional response. But hopefully as we keep making that decision to love, as we choose to keep loving, then the feelings will follow as well. So we need to say sorry and to decide to choose to love Jesus again. So we need to remember how things were before and what Jesus is really like. We need to repent, say sorry, change direction. And then thirdly, we need to resume what we were doing before. So it says, repent, Uh, this is in verse 5, repent and do the things you did at first. So this may mean that we need to review our priorities because we might have lost our way a little bit since we first came to know Jesus. How do we spend our time and resources I don't know Portswood Church very well, but I I know that in the evangelical church in general, there's quite a tendency towards activism. Whereas perhaps we need to more often spend time as individuals and as a church, heeding what it says in verse 10 of Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. I hear of more and more couples ensuring that they have date nights as otherwise they're just so busy with work, with running the home, looking after the children if they have them, ferrying them backwards and forwards to activities, that they just don't have time for one another and their relationship suffers. So planning regular time together sounds like a good idea to me. I wonder if we need to ensure that we have the equivalent of a date night in our daily rhythms and weekly rhythms in our relationship with Jesus chance to spend time with Jesus, to look at him, to remember why we love him, and to nurture our relationship with him? Do we need to cut down on our doing so that we have more chance of being? The closer we are to Jesus, the better then we'll then be able to discern what his priorities are for our lives and for our church. Or it may be that nothing needs to change. It may be that we we carry on doing just what we've been doing. But if we're doing this with a new love for Jesus, then we'll be doing those things with a new love, with a new joy, with a new impetus. Maybe our activities will stay the same. But if they're fueled by new love for Jesus, then we'll have new energy and new joy. And if we've recaptured our love for Jesus, then that can only have a positive impact on our relationships with one another within the church are we loving one another as brothers and sisters 
Are there relationships within the church that need putting right? I don't know. And then when we think about those who are not yet in our church, those we're seeking to draw into the church family, are we loving them? Are we welcoming them and accepting them? If we're loving Jesus, then we'll love one another and, and others out of our love for Jesus rather than out of any duty or obligation. And if our service and our activities flow out of love for Jesus, then surely they'll bear more fruit and have greater impact. As we think about what it says in the book of John about remaining in Jesus, the vine, and bearing fruit. And if we're loving Jesus, our service for him will bear more fruit. So we need to remember, to repent, and to resume. And then as we come towards the end of the letter, uh, the letter ends with a serious warning and a great promise. But it also ends with the encouragement to listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying. If you look at the first part of verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is an exhortation that's repeated in all the seven letters. So it's obviously important And it's important that not just the people in the church at Ephesus listened, but that we, as Christians in Portswood Church in the 21st century, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through God's word. These seven letters are for all of us. So we need to listen to the warnings and we need to listen to the promises. So the warning we find in the second part of verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's quite harsh, isn't it? You might be thinking, what on earth does that mean? But if the lampstand represents the church, and it's saying the lampstand will be removed, it seems to be saying that the church will no longer be a light for the gospel. It may mean that the church will disappear. And in fact, the church in Ephesus in the first century did subsequently disappear. It's a sobering thought, isn't it, that our church could cease to exist if we don't recapture our love for Jesus. I wonder if quite often we have an individualistic view of our faith. We think about my relationship with God, how I can be blessed, how I can serve and so on. But obviously this isn't just about an individual or even a single church, but ultimately about the spread of God's kingdom and about God's purposes being fulfilled throughout the world. If a church is no longer furthering God's kingdom in line with his will, it may even cease to be a church at all. And then finally, the promise which we find in the second part of verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's interesting to note that although the letter is to the whole church at Ephesus and the warning is a collective one, the promise here seems to be an individual one, to him who overcomes, or to the one who overcomes in more modern translations. And I think, I think this could mean two things. Firstly, yes, it's a message 
to the whole church. But as I said before, the church is made up of individuals, isn't it? So we each need to be playing our part. Each of us matters when it comes to the church fulfilling God's promises. And then secondly, it is a promise to each and every one of us that if we stand firm, if we finish the race, if we're victorious in the battle with evil, then we will enjoy eternal life with God and free access to all that's been forbidden to us as fallen human beings. That's a great promise, isn't it? That is open to each one of us. Even if our church were to disappear, please God that it wouldn't, but even if our church were to disappear, then if we are faithful, each one of us will one day stand before the throne of God and see Jesus face to face and enjoy his love fully and forever. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue speaking to us as we reflect on what we've read in your word this morning. And as we continue this journey through the book of Revelation, may we be people who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Father, please help us as we reflect on what this letter might mean for us as individuals and for us as a church here at Portswood and here in Southampton. Father, if we've lost our first love for Jesus as individuals or as a church, then we ask that you would forgive us, that you would have mercy on us, that you would help us to remember, to repent and to resume the things we were doing before. Give us a fresh vision of Jesus and help us to love him again and to serve him out of love and not out of duty or obligation. And may that love for Jesus impact our love for one another within the church and our love for those who don't yet know Jesus. Would our love for Jesus just overflow to all we meet and bear much fruit? Father, please would you take this message and uh, just speak to us in the way that you would want. Would the outcomes be according to your will for the church here at Portswood, the church here in Southampton, and your church across the world? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just take a few more minutes to... Uh, to reflect on what this might mean for us as individuals and as a church. If you'd like to just remain in an attitude of prayer and spend a few more moments reflecting, and then the band are going to come up and lead us in some further sung worship and response. <laughs>